Leviticus 5, verses 1 through 6. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath, and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of unclean livestock, or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips, to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be, when he is guilty in any of these matters, that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing, and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. Let's pray. O Lord our God, Lord, we do pray. praise you that we can come before you, that we can worship you, that we can hear your word. Lord, we do pray that you would be at work this day, that you would cause us to, to listen, that you would cause us to hear not just sounds in the ear, Lord, but that you would hear us, that you would cause us to hear your word, to believe it for the truth that it is. Lord, we do pray that you would be with Mr. Horn, that you would give him words to speak, that you would fill him with your spirit, and you would cause him to explain your word to us. Lord, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to consider your words. We do pray that you would use them to change us, Lord, that you would help us to see how these things apply to our lives. Amen. So as we start chapter 5, we've been dealing with, with the offerings in Leviticus for some time now. I think most of the offerings point pretty clearly to specific important doctrines that are related to Christ and what he does for us. The burnt offering, it's the picture of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ took the punishment that was due for his people. For those who he decided to show mercy on, for those who he, that God the Father and God the Son covenanted with before the foundation of the world, that these are the ones that he would save, that through his death on the cross, he paid for their sins, he paid for their transgressions, he paid for the transgressions of those that he would make his people, that Jesus Christ was the substitute receiving the wrath of God in their place. So he took the punishment for the sin, the separation from God the Father that, that everyone who rebels against him, everyone that sins against him deserves. And he became separated from God the Father so that those who trust in him do not have to be. They can be restored so that they can come back into his presence. And then the grain offering, that picture that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That he has given us what we need to have spiritual life. That those who he makes priests, that, that they eat daily, that they eat from the, the grain, from the bread of life, from his word that he has given us. 
when he has us have our faith and trust in Jesus, he gives us spiritual bread like the priests receive physical bread. It's a picture that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, turns or guides us to the truth from His Word, so we can eat that offering that God gave through the sacrifice of Christ. Then we talked about the peace offering, the picture of abundant life, that the the blessing that God gives to His people, He doesn't just save us from the terrors of hell, but He saves us to live life abundantly. The peace offering is about rejoicing before the Lord. And not just for those who he saves, but it's a temporal blessing to people whose sin is constrained. In the last few weeks, we've been considering the sin offering. When someone sins unintentionally and then they realize that they've sinned against the holy and just God. It's that picture of salvation and specifically justification. Because it's about being confronted with the reality that when you thought you were okay with God, you realize that you're actually in rebellion to God. It's what salvation looks like. It's what coming to faith looks like. That you see your sin not as you want to see it, but you see your sin as God sees it. Now we come to the trespass offering. In the trespass offering, with the sin offering, there were some, you know, it was sin unintentionally. It's a very broad category, but there was some hint as to when you give it. But now with the trespass offering, God is being very specific. We shouldn't think of these as the only specific sins for which you should do trespass offerings. But God is giving examples. He's giving case law to say these are the things that require trespass offering. And as you read these, the sins are, you know, in, in man's viewpoint, they're relatively minor. It's not like murder. Instead, it's like, well, you know, You see somebody doing something that's contrary to an oath that they took, and you don't say anything or do anything. It's not even a sin that you did directly. It's that you didn't, you weren't your brother's keeper. You didn't, you didn't watch and care for your brother when he violated his oath. It's not, it's not adultery. It's like breaking a ceremonial law by teaching a, by touching a dead animal without even knowing it. And yet you have to give a trespass offering. It's a picture of, of what someone who does try to serve the living God, who has a heart to serve God, but still falls short. So I think the trespass offering is, is the picture of continual need for repentance. That the, the life of a Christian is repentance. The life of, the, of a Christian is not you repent once and then all your, your sin goes away. It's the picture that we continually need to look in our lives and see the sin that's there. Because it doesn't have to be deliberate. It doesn't have to be intentional. It doesn't have to be that you're trying to sin. But we still sin. And we still need to be cleansed of that sin. We still need to be turn from that sin so i think this is a picture of first john 1 8 through 10 if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us
I think that's the picture of the trespass offering. It's this recognition as a Christian that, that you should never say, I don't sin, because that means you're not saved. The truth doesn't abide in you. Jesus Christ is the truth, and he is not abiding in you. And you are not abiding in him if you don't see that you're a sinner. But at the same time, we can confess our sin and God will cleanse us of our sin, which is exactly the language that's used in verse six, or verse 5 of this passage. That if we confess it, that God will cleanse us of our sin. So I think this is, this is the picture, the trespass offering. But just as this describes certain types of sin in this passage that require trespass offering, we need to recognize what sins require trespass offering and by which, and which sins mean that we have never trusted in Christ. We have never trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We haven't received Christ as a sin offering. Sins that John explains that Christians still have is different than the sins that John says Christians don't have. He does say, don't say you don't have sin or the truth doesn't abide in you. But at the same time, in 1 John 3, 7 through 10, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. But he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So there are sins that are sins that are showing that you're not practicing righteousness that show that you won't inherit the kingdom of God, and then there's sins that Christians commit. And I think if you look at these two offerings, the sin offering and the trespass offering, it's the difference between the two. The one is done in in ignorance of God. The one is done in lawlessness. The sin offering. And then God, Jesus Christ was the sin offering so we could be reconciled to the Father. And then there's those sins that Christians do because we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And when we do those sins, we still need to recognize that it is through Christ and through his sacrifice on the cross that those sins can be forgiven. But it doesn't mean we don't need to confess our sin. It doesn't mean that, we, that we're allowed to hide our sin instead of dealing with it. There's sins that prove that you're not practicing righteousness. Which is why Paul can write to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying these things still require a sin offering. But once you've received Jesus Christ as your sin offering, then there's other sins that you still trespass in, that you still have to deal with. 
or what he wrote to the church in Galatia, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So God is saying, there's sins that mean you need Christ as a sin offering. And there's sins that mean you still need to be forgiven as Christ as a trespass offering. Or another example that Christ tells John in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, 7 through 8. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There are sins that still require a sin offering because it means you're not practicing righteousness. And there's the sins that Christians keep doing. So as we look at these examples... I've given you examples of what still requires a sin offering, but as we look at these examples in in Leviticus 5, we should be going, how do I do these things? How do these fit in my walk with Christ that I need to confess these sins and I need to cleanse myself of these sins? So as we consider the reasons for the sacrifice of the trespass offering, it's clearly broader than the ones that are listed here. We should consider these as case law. We should consider these as as examples of sins that Christians do. That when you're practicing righteousness, you still do these things. Because all Christians sin. So there's a list of things from the passages above that are case law about what it means not to be saved. But as John wrote in 3 John... If you're not practicing righteousness, you need a sin offering, not a trespass offering. But God is good, and for His people, He does more than just act as the sin offering. He did more than deliver us from hell through the shedding of His blood. He sanctifies us. The trespass offering is about sanctification. It's about being cleansed. It's about being changed. It's about being convicted of our sin. Not in a not in a salvific or a justification sense. Not in oh I'm saved now. I've been born again. But in the sense that this is what God does for those who He has adopted as His children. This is what He does for those who He treats as His children. He is faithful. He is good. He is kind to His people. He does more than just deliver us from hell. He delivers us to righteousness. We stop being a slave of sin and we become a slave of righteousness. That's what salvation looks like. And this is what it looks like when you're a slave of righteousness. That you still need to deal with your sin. So with that, let's go to verse 1. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath, and is a witness whether he has seen or known of the matter... If he does not tell it, he bears guilt. So it starts with if a person sins. 
It's easy to consider this not a sin. You hear somebody take an oath. Let's use the most obvious example, which is entering into the covenant of marriage. You witness taking that oath. You go to the wedding and you see them take the oath. And then you see one of them flirt with somebody outside of their marriage. You see one of them not fulfill the vows to care for their wife, to care for their husband. And you walk by and ignore it. That's sin. That's sin. It's really clear, right? If a person sins by not not that they violated their oath, they didn't do anything else about someone or they didn't do anything about someone else that violated their oath. That's the first example that God uses of what requires a trespass offering. And he starts by saying, it is sin. It's sin. It's easy to look at that and think, well, yes, I should do something, but it's not that big of a deal if I don't. And God goes, no, it actually requires a trespass offering. It actually required Jesus Christ to go to the cross because you didn't say anything when somebody violated an oath. That required Jesus Christ to go to the cross. It's the most basic case of that we must be different than Cain. Genesis 4, 9. Then the Lord said to, to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God tells Moses, if you don't keep your brother, if you don't call him to account when he violates his oath, you're like Cain. You're a sinner. You have sinned. Not that you violated your oath, but that they violated their oath and you didn't do anything about it. If you know what they committed to and you say nothing, you are guilty. So if a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath, that here, you know, if hearing about the utterance of the oath, you bear the guilt, not just if you were specifically called as a witness to the, of the oath. For instance, you could have it that when, when the reason that you have a congregation when you, do, when you do a wedding, instead of it just be private, is that you're telling those people when you stand up in front and you, you enter into marriage, you're telling all the people seated there, hold me accountable to this oath that I'm... That I'm saying. That's why the congregation is there. But God says that's it's not just the ones that were there, it's not just the ones that saw you enter into the oath. It's also anyone that hears about it. And that word oath, I mean it means imprecation. It means that you're saying, God, pour out your wrath upon me if I don't do these things. It's where you're Asking God to enforce the oath. And the way, one of the ways he enforces the oath is he tells his people, those who have faith in him, to do something about it when somebody violates it. Just because God is the one that will bring curses upon him, 
upon people who take oaths falsely, it doesn't mean that man doesn't have responsibility. If you don't participate in enforcing God's word, you're in sin. That's what God says. God's saying, if you're, if you're in a trial and you bear false witness and nobody comes forward and says, this person lied, all of those people are in sin. They can't just go, well, they have to catch them. They need to catch him committing perjury. No, God is saying that's sin. The person who violates their oath of marriage and they do nothing, you do nothing, that's sin. You're asking God to, where somebody has asked God to judge them. When they say in the name of God, that's what they're doing. They're asking God to judge them. And it says, and as a witness, either the hearing of the oath, it could be in person, which means that they were a witness to it, or whether he has seen it, meaning that they, they saw the person entering the oath, or if he known of the matter. So if you know two people are married, you don't go, well, I wasn't at their wedding. I don't know that they took an oath. You know that they took an oath. You know that they entered into marriage. You know this. So you stand guilty. You didn't have to witness them entering in the oath. You know that they took the oath. So if you know that they took an oath, you bear guilt. God's, God's law is not about, let's see how we can, we can get out on a technicality. Well, I wasn't there. I didn't see them take an oath. So I'm just going to pretend like they didn't take it. You know they're married. You know they took an oath. It's just simply not true. And God's saying, you stand guilty in that case. So if he does not tell it, this is where I believe the structure of the Hebrews starts talking about the violation rather than talking. It's not that you've witnessed that they violated or that you know that they violated. It's that you know that they had an oath and now you know that they're in violation and you don't say anything. You don't tell it. It's not even explicit to say that they failed to do it, but it seems pretty clear that it's about you have to tell if somebody failed to keep their oath. You know, God said in Deuteronomy 10, 20 and 21, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. It's not a sin to enter into an oath. And so it has to be that when it says that you don't, don't tell it, that it's talking about where you don't tell about the violation, about the, the, the not keeping the oath. To take an oath is to treat God as God. To take imprecatory oaths in his name, to say, God, judge me if I fail to do this. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. The Anabaptists teach that, but, but it's contrary to what Christ said. It's contrary to the law. It is fine to take oaths in the name of God, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you can just ignore it when you take them or you can ignore it if someone else takes it. So I think that it here is you have a requirement to tell if they violated the oath Recognizes also, this is back to a person, so it's saying a man has a responsibility, but so does every woman. 
So does every child. If a child sees their parents violating their oath, they have a responsibility to say something. God is about light. He's not about darkness. He's about light. He's not about darkness. So if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. If you fail to be your brother or your sister's keeper in regard of blaspheming the name of God, in regard of ignoring an oath, and not taking the violation of that oath seriously, it is a serious, it is guilt. You stand guilty. Again, and this is the the first example of what I think God is telling Moses, examples of things that, that those who truly have faith in God, those who have received Jesus Christ as their sin offering, that these are sins we can commit. But we shouldn't think that we're innocent before God. These are serious sins that require a trespass offering. Verses 2 and 3. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things and he is unaware of it he shall also be un- he also shall be unclean and guilty or if he touches human uncleanness whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled and he is unaware of it when he realizes it then he shall be guilty so if a person touches any unclean thing so now we turn from what was clearly a, an offense that was violating a law, was violating a moral law. Now we turn to something that's clearly a ceremonial law. Touching an unclean carcass is not, is not a sin in the eyes of God for a Gentile. Since Jesus Christ tore down the middle wall of separation between a Jew and a Gentile, this isn't, this isn't a moral transgression, but this is a picture of a moral transgression. This is a picture, I mean, this is a, a commandment that was given specifically to Israel. They had unclean, clean and unclean animals. And it's related to their food laws. For instance, in Deuteronomy 14.21, you shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So they were allowed to, the Gentiles could take the carcass. The Gentiles could eat the, the flesh of the animal. It was just for Israel that they couldn't. So this is ceremonial law. It's about a difference between Israel and the Gentiles. So if a person, and again, this is any person, if they touch an unclean thing, whether it is the carcass, so the first example of unclean thing that God is going to speak about is, was something that died. You don't become unclean by touching an unclean animal that's still alive. You've become unclean by touching one that has already died. So touching the carcass of an unclean beast. And it's, it's pretty broad. It's easy for us to think of a beast as a certain kind of living animal. But the word translated beast really just means alive. That's how it's most frequently translated. 
living life, living creature. These are how it's typically translated. Its first use was in Genesis 1, verse 20. Then God said, let the waters abound with the abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. That term living creature, talking about fish and things in the ocean, that's saying, that's the same word here. So we shouldn't just think of it like animals that are breathing. It's, it's, it also qualifies for, a, for something that's in the, in the water. So the living creature, it's translated beast here. We need to recognize how broad we're talking about. And again, we have a responsibility to understand what is pictured when we're talking about ceremonial law because God did it to show that Israel was a holy people. He didn't do it so that that we would go, oh, this is just some interesting punishment or some interesting thing that he did to, to the Jews, to Israel. No, he did it to them. He caused them to have these laws so that we could understand things. So as we read a ceremonial law, we're not just supposed to go, oh, this is... This is ceremonial. We can ignore it. We're supposed to go, this is ceremonial. We need to understand what spiritual reality is pictured by the physical law. So it seems to me that, that in this case, it's really a picture of being defiled by the world just by going through it. Throughout the history of Israel and Judah before they ceased to be a nation, before Christ came and tore down that middle wall of separation, most of the time they didn't have, they didn't have like bridges. People would just ford the water. And just think about it. You ford the water and something brushes your leg that goes by in the stream. Well, if it was a dead animal, you just became unclean. You just became guilty. You're walking in the, the, the field and you... You know, you're in the, and it's grown up and you, you are stepping and you don't realize you just stepped on a dead mouse. You're guilty. You're guilty. That's what the law was. And that was pointing to a spiritual reality for Christians. Don't think that as you walk through life that you don't bump up against unclean dead things. And I'm talking spiritually dead. I'm talking spiritually defiling things. And these, we're still guilty. This is why we're to examine ourselves. This is why we're supposed to look at what happened. What things do we partake in? Not intentionally, but things that are sinful that we don't pay enough attention to, that we don't see them the way that they are. So we just kind of go through it and we just go along. How often does this happen at a business where, yeah, you're not intentionally sinning, but you just do what the business says to do, and it's sin. This requires a trespass offering. To be forgiven, this required Christ to go to the cross. We should recognize how many times they would have been defiled. God didn't choose that as something that we just go, oh, yeah, they would, it would happen to them, but it doesn't happen to us. We're supposed to look at that and go, it would happen to them, so how often does it happen to us? And how often do we watch for it happening to us? 
when we go through life, we're affected by people who are slaves of sin. Then it says, or the carcass of unclean livestock. So this is another kind of animal. Again, the word is first used in Genesis Genesis 1, 24 and 25. Then God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So in that passage, it's translated cattle. What's translated here is livestock. And it really comes from a word that means to be mute. It's kind of odd because cows and other things are not mute. But yet, they don't react the same way to man that other animals do. And so it's really made of, of two groups. One is what's called large cattle, which would be like bullocks, cows. And then small cattle, which is sheep and goats. So the first example was, was touching the dead unclean. And the second example is touching the dead clean. These are clean animals. Bullocks and, and goats and sheep. These are all the things that we've been talking about, about the sacrifices being made. They were clean. But this is about touching the dead clean animals. This is, so I think, again, what this is a picture of is coming into contact with people who are in the church that they, they profess Christ. They profess like they're believers. But they're not practicing righteousness. They're really dead. They look clean, but they're dead. And we should recognize God is saying, when that happens, even that sin, where you don't see that they're dead, you don't, you don't see how you're defiled by them, you don't see how you're impacted by them. That required Christ to die. That's how serious these sins are. We shouldn't think that we can only be defiled by people in the world. We can also get defiled by people in the church. Who profess Christ, but their hearts really aren't aligned. But we can't see their hearts. But they're dead, they're dead clean things. Or the carcass of unclean creeping things. The word translated creeping things means to, to swarm or to wiggle. It's referenced later in Leviticus to refer to flying insects. Weasels and mice are also used as examples of this word. So it, it's, again, it's a pretty broad category. But I want, have you ever been walking somewhere and you just slap yourself without thinking? Because maybe, you know, there's gnats there or a mosquito or something. That would be enough to make you unclean according to this. Because if you killed them, you just touched the dark, the carcass of a creeping thing. That's how serious it is. Have you ever, like, come in from being outside and all of a sudden you see bites on your arm? But you didn't even notice. Or maybe you slapped it without thinking. That's the level that God says, this is what uncleanness looks like. This is, this is how sin permeates everything. Sin permeates our lives. It's all, you know, through the history of the world, most people had real problem with lice. 
and some of those lice would die. And guess what? They need a trespass offering for that dead lice that they had. So we should see this as a picture of just how much sin permeates our lives. Christ taking on flesh and dwelling among men, walking in perfect accordance with the laws that created a great anger among the Jews that they wanted to to crucify him because his walk would have shown them how often they sinned. And these offerings would have been required like continually for everyone which should be a reminder to us that we need Christ as our, as, our, as our trespass offering continually because we're always affected by sin. We're always touched by sin. Even when we're sanctified, sin is still widespread in our life. And he is unaware of it. Your guilt is not based on your awareness Your sin is based upon the violation of the commandments of God. The commandments of God in their fullness, not the commandments of God in case law, but in all the permeations of it. Just like Jesus Christ said, the man, you know, they said of old, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, any man that looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart. These are all trespass offerings. The adultery requires a sin offering. But every one of these, all this, every fullness of the law requires Jesus Christ to be a sacrifice so that we can have our sins forgiven. So he shall be unclean and guilty. You get the uncleanness, not with even your knowledge. You brush up against something that's dead and you become unclean and guilty. God still looks upon you as guilty. So think about how they would always be guilty. But yet, God said there's a sacrifice. We should just recognize how widespread our sin is and how we still need the sacrifice of Christ. Then he goes on to the next example, which is, or if he touches human uncleanness. The last type of uncleanness that God described that required a trespass offering is, is human uncleanness. So this would be include during the menstrual cycle, but any time that a human has a flow from their body, whatever uncleanness, whatever comes out of a man that makes that that, that defiles a man. And we know from the New Testament what this is a picture of. In Matthew 15, 16 through 20, So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. It's the picture of it's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. And whatever, whenever you touch the things that come out of men that defile men, that defiles you and that requires a trespass offering. 
Don't be deceived. You are affected by the sin of the world around you. We live in a nation that has all kinds of perversity that we embrace, all kinds of, of thoughts that we think are, are acceptable as a culture. And as you become a Christian and as you're sanctified, you see more and more of those of how you've been affected by it. But don't think you see every way that you're affected by it. You become unclean and guilty when you're touched by the things of the world. All of that requires a trespass offering. We are affected by the sin in the world around us. So whatever cleanness with which a man may be defiled, all of the things that people do, that are against the commandment of God, any uncleanness requires a trespass offering. And this one is not if he is unaware of it. This is, <coughs> and if he, and he is unaware of it, so they're specifically unaware of it. They don't recognize that they have been touched by somebody else's sin. They're not willfully rebelling against the commandments of God. It's not that they're not practicing righteousness. They can be practicing righteousness, but they've been, they've been touched. They've been affected by the sin of other people when he realizes it. So in this case, it's talking that when he realizes it, that's when he becomes guilty. So the creeping things, the carcasses, when you touch those, you're guilty even if you don't know about it. But here all of a sudden it's, God's saying, when you're touched by the sin of man, when you realize that their sin has affected you, then you're guilty. Then you have to confess it. Then you have to repent. And you become guilty. Not that you're participating in someone else's sin, just that you're affected by their sin. You become guilty as well. If you do nothing about it, then you're guilty. And then the last example of, of cases that require trespass offering, verses 4 through the beginning of 6. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips, to do, good, to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. So it starts with if a person swears. Again, these cases that God is listing as reasons that require trespass offering, there are things that are easy for true faithful Christians to do. We shouldn't think that these are things that just other people do. But we should think of these as things that it's easy for us to do. These are not sins that show that you're not righteous. These are sins that show that the righteous still need to repent. That they still continue to sin. That they still need the forgiveness of God. That they still need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. They still need a trespass offering. So in this case, if any soul swears, and that word swears come from the word for seven. So it's Saba, which is related to Sabbath, obviously. The Sabbath is the seventh, and Saba means seven. And the idea of seven in the Bible is this is completeness. So this is where you've said, no, I will do it. And they 
argue that it's when you've said it seven times is what this is referring to. No, I really do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Where you've really given strong assurances that you're going to do it. But you spoke thoughtlessly. It's easy to speak without thinking. Even to, co- to, to express your complete commitment to something without actually being committed to it. And that's what this sin is. This sin is where you go and you say, yes, I'm going to do this. I promise you, I'm going to do this. And then you realize, well, yeah, there's other things in life. This isn't all there is. But you said that and you made that commitment without thinking through the implications of that commitment. It's what's a sin to do this. It's because you were speaking thoughtlessly. And you say it with your lips. You tell other people the commitment is not just you committing to God. This is you speaking to other people. So you're affecting other people. And then it's to do evil or to do good. So this isn't about what was promised. This was about actually speaking thoughtlessly. And now to do evil or good, you know, if you went, I promise I'm going to murder this person, that's not the case that it's talking about. It's where you say, I'll promise, I'll promise that I'll feed this person. And then you go, wait a second, I found out he doesn't work. And if you don't work, you shall not eat. So I, it's actually evil for me to feed this person. That's the case that it's talking about. Not that you're openly promising to do evil. It's that you find out more information. So you go, this would actually be evil. But I didn't think it through. So the sin is related to not thinking it through. Not, not you're speaking thoughtlessly. Or it's you commit to do something good and you go, yes, I'll do such and such. And then you go, wait a second. Afterwards you think, but I need to do this and I need to do this and I need to do this. And I don't have time to do that. So it's not that you plotted to do evil, it's that you didn't plot, you didn't think about it, you didn't consider it. Even that requires Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Even that requires forgiveness from God. Just not thinking about something sufficiently. That makes you stand guilty before God. So whatever it is that a man may promise by an oath, whatever it is that's verbalized to other things, that whatever it is that you've declared, whether it's good or whether you realize it's evil later, you swear that you did it, and then you go, but I can't. And you're unaware of it, right? If, if you knew that you couldn't do it, then that's not for a trespass offering. If you knew that, that it was evil, a trespass offering doesn't cover that. If you swore that you would murder somebody, that's not what it's talking about here. That still requires a sin offering. When, they, when, they, when the group of people in Jerusalem swore that they would kill Paul, that required a sin offering. That didn't require a trespass offering when they didn't do it. But it's when you promise to do something and then later you realize wait a second that's wrong to do that when he realizes when you realize it was wrong to make the commitment whether it was a commitment to do good that you can't do or a commitment that you then realize it's evil and that you shouldn't do it when you realize it he shall be guilty 
then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. Then you bear the guilt. Notice that you are guilty. If you committed to do evil, even without doing the evil, you're still guilty before God. And it shall be when any of these conditions described in the first verses in this chapter, it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters. And again, it's important to recognize this is not intended to be an exclusive list. This is a list of examples that we should recognize and we should look at and we should go, these are times where we need Jesus Christ as a trespass offering, that we still need forgiveness as those who are being sanctified, as those who are being cleansed, that we still needed Jesus Christ to go to the cross so that we could be cleansed of our sins, be turned from Him. So when He realizes it, then He shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be, when any of these situations happen... When he is guilty in any of these matters, then he shall confess. That word translated confess comes from either to use the hand or to throw. I think the meaning here is that you like throw it out among the people. It's not like in in Greek when it uses the word confess, it means that basically your tongue and your mind match. Right? When you go, I see I'm sinning, and you're thinking that you're sinning, and you say, I'm sinning. That's confession. That's not what the Hebrew word here means. This means make it known. This means throw it out there. So remember, you're bringing this lamb in, you're bringing these birds in, and you take them into the temple courtyard, or the tabernacle courtyard. Everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to know that you're doing a, a, a trespass offering. It's not going to be a secret. But that's not enough. You actually can't kill it. You can't make that trespass offering until you make known the reason that you need to make the trespass offering. You have to confess that you sinned in this th- that thing. Not just anything, but that thing. You need to say, this trespass offering is because of this thing that I did. You know, in the Second London Baptist Confession, it says that you have to confess particular sins particularly. That's what this is a picture of. You can't just say, oh, I've sinned. I'm a sinner. God, forgive me. You have to go, here's how I sinned. And when they brought that trespass offering and when they brought it to be killed... They had to go, here's how I sinned. Here's how I transgressed. This is why it requires a trespass offering. You have to confess that you sinned in that thing. And then so he'll bring his trespass offering. The trespass offering, which we'll talk about how you give it next week. But he brings it to the Lord. Because all these things, even these things that you didn't know about, even these things that you were unaware of, you're still guilty and you still need the forgiveness of Christ for those things. You still, all these minor things, not being your brother's keeper, not not enforcing an oath that somebody entered into, which you see them violating, all of that is worthy of damnation. That's how serious it is, these minor infractions that are so easy for us to do. They're still worthy of damnation and still require Jesus Christ to go to the cross so that we could be forgiven those sins. So he has to bring the trespass office, offer the trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. 
It's all sin. It's all sin. Even people sinning near you that touch you with their sin, that you don't recognize that it's sin, it's still your sin. And it all still needs to be forgiven. And it all can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. Let me give some applications. The first application, it is sin to ignore other people's sin. We have to recognize this. It is sin to ignore other people's sin. I think ignoring that has caused so many problems in the church, all over the world. As people just go, well, they're sinning, but that's their problem. Instead of going, they're sinning, and I know it, so now it is my problem. That's how the church is purified. That's how, that's how the people of God are shown to be a holy people. It is sin to ignore other people's sins and to not try to deal with it. Especially in the specific case where they took an oath before God. We're not just supposed to sit back and say God will deal with their sin. Thinking along the lines of Hebrews 6.6. 6, for men indeed swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. It's supposed to end the dispute. But it also puts real responsibility on the people of God. To watch to see if that, if that swearing was, was false or was true. Because if it was false, the people of God have a real responsibility to deal with it. It stops the dispute until you find out, wait a second, that person bore false witness. And everyone who knows of the matter has a responsibility to make it known. Think how much difference that would make in American society. American society has been being destroyed since the 60s, specifically because of no-fault divorce, where we go, oh, nobody's supposed to accuse anybody of sin and divorce. That's completely and totally contrary to the Word of God. Like, absolutely contrary to the Word of God. People have a responsibility to speak if they know somebody's violated an oath. And that's very related to the next application, we should be really careful about our membership covenant. You know, when someone stands up here and enters into covenant with the church, and then they disobey those things that they entered into covenant, and we believe that everything in that membership covenant is straight from Scripture, but you have you sit in sin if you know somebody is violating their membership covenant and you don't say anything. That's your sin, not just their sin. That's your sin. They've asked God to judge them. They've, asked, they've entered an imprecatory oath. But that puts real responsibility on the rest of the body, the other parts of the body. If you know somebody's violating a membership covenant, a, a phrase of the membership covenant, and you say nothing, it's sin. It's clearly sin in the eyes of God. All of us should be participating in being our brother's keeper. All of us are supposed to be participating in constraining sin. That's every Christian's duty. And that means you say something, you tell it. 
doesn't even say who to tell it to, but it's obvious. You tell it to the authorities that are supposed to deal with it, the ones that have responsibility to deal with it. Related, another application related to that, we should recognize the breadth of responsibility to enforce oaths. Many men enter in an oath to love their wives, and then husbands start physically abusing their wives. And the wives say, and I've heard this many times, it's not fair. Why is adultery the only means for divorce? My husband's beating me, but they won't tell the church that he violated his oath. They don't tell it to the church. They don't tell it to the civil magistrate. There is another solution. It doesn't require divorce. What it requires is those who are supposed to constrain sin to constrain sin. But the wife goes, oh, I don't want to charge my husband. And then she gets beaten again. I've seen this happen. You hear about it, right? This is why Paige Patterson got removed as the president of of Southwestern Seminary. Because he said... You can't get divorced if your husband's beating you, but it doesn't mean you don't call the police. She's sinning because she didn't say anything when her husband violated the oath. That's what we need to recognize. That child that knows that his father is beating his wife, he has a responsibility to say something. It's very easy for us to just ignore it, but God's law is self-correcting. It will protect the society. It actually works. But people want to skip parts of it and then complain about other parts of it. Instead of recognizing it all works if you do all of it. They want to complain about God's law, but they don't want to consider how their sin is a contributor to it. And I don't mean that they antagonize their husband some way. I mean that they didn't report that their husband was physically violent to them. That their husband was walking in the flesh. So they should. So their husband who's walking in the flesh and beating their wife. Yes, he needs a sin offering. He needs to come to know Christ. But the wife, it's still a trespass offering. It still requires a trespass offering when you won't say anything. Let's see how serious this is. Another application. We should not be deceived how we can be defiled by people in the church. Think about how many churches find out that their pastor committed adultery. We are not supposed to look at the church and think of it as a safe haven. It is a place of rest. It is a place to find co-laborers. It is a place. So I'm not saying that, that the church doesn't have, you know, that all we're supposed to do is sit back and say, they're going to mislead us. They're going to mislead us. But at the same time, we're not supposed to be thoughtless about it. We're not supposed to just close our eyes. We're not just supposed to be unaware. We're supposed to recognize that there are figuratively carcasses of dead, of clean animals that are inside the church. Walking around among the professed people of God, defiling them. We're supposed to watch out to make sure that we're not being misled. An application related to that is when we first planted Reformation, we definitely had a great awareness of this idea about how we had been defiled by other people in the church and how we were guilty because we hadn't done anything about it. We hadn't touched it. 
My question is, do we still have that same zeal? Do we still have that same desire to make sure that we're not affected by other people's sin in the church? Do we still have the same same zeal to be cleansed of our sins? Another application, we need to recognize how much we're affected by the world around us. We're tainted by the things that the society embraces. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But Paul's saying, evil company corrupts good habits. We need to watch. We need to recognize that when we touch the unclean carcasses of the world, that it really affects us. That it really causes us to embrace things that are sin, that we don't even think of them as sin, just because our attitude and our culture is such that this is, we just think this is the way it is. And that's not right. We're in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation, and we should recognize that it makes us think differently about other things. We are being defiled by the society around us, but that doesn't make us innocent of the sin. That makes us responsible to see it in our own lives, to see how it's affecting us, to see how we're supposed to confess it and turn from it. Another application. When we tie together taking every thought captive for Christ and letting your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything else is from the evil one. When we connect those two ideas together, that's the picture of needing the trespass offering. Because God sets a higher standard for us than he did for Israel. Israel, they have to say, no, I swear to do this. Christ says, all you have to do is say, I'm going to do this. And if you don't do it then you're guilty. We have a duty to take every thought captive, and we're not supposed to speak thoughtlessly. We're supposed to speak with consideration, and so the standard is much higher when you have the Holy Spirit than it was for Israel. How often do you speak without thinking? How often do you make commitments without thinking through the the ramification of those commitments? When we do that, we need to recognize we're guilty. But we need to repent of that sin. Sins of the mouth are so easy to do, so easy to commit. But they all start with not taking every thought captive. We need to be thinking more and speaking less. Another application. Paul makes it very clear that the trespass offering we're to make now, which is enabled through Christ because he's our trespass offering, And he's the way that we can receive forgiveness from God for our sins. But just like these other offerings, we are both, Christ is the fulfillment of it, and at the same time that we have a spiritual duty to be making the same sacrifice. And so it looks very different in the new covenant. We don't physically take a lamb in to be killed. But we do have to make a, we do have to make a trespass offering. So I think Christ fulfilled the physical picture. So now we have a spiritual picture, which I think Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrow, sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. 
For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you were sorrowed in a god that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. That's what a trespass offering looks like now. This is what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to respond when we see our sin. When they saw that they sinned in a matter by like not holding somebody accountable for violating an oath, they were supposed to bring an animal that, that died. What we're supposed to do, to be sanctified from the sin, we're supposed to be diligent. We're supposed to be diligent. If we actually see the sin for the sin that it is, we're supposed to be diligent to protect ourselves from that sin, to protect ourselves from falling into that temptation, to, to constrain the evil in somebody else to do something about it. That's what we're supposed to do when we see the sin. It produces restitution. When we see that we damage somebody else, we don't just go, oh, I'm sorry. We actually... We actually try to, to, to clear it, clear the matter, to make it so that they can't hold it against us anymore. When we did something that negatively impacted other people, it produces a hatred toward the sin. Giving a sin offering now, or a trespass offering now, it produces a hatred towards that sin. It doesn't produce apathy. So often... You see in the church that people are like dogs that return to their own vomit. That they do a sin, they confess the sin, they go, oh, I'm forgiven the sin, and then the next week they're right back at it. That's not, being, that's not giving a trespass offering. That's just ignoring your sin. Trespass offering, actually desiring to give a trespass offering, it produces zeal, not apathy. It produces fear, recognizing that we're just flesh, that we still have a sin nature in us, that we can easily fall into doing things that we should not do. So we, it produces a fear in us of falling again so that we put protection so that we don't walk that same path. That's what it looks like now to give a trespass offering. It produces vehement desire to do what's right instead of what's contrary to God. It produces zeal for good things, for the things that God calls us to Instead of just fearing the things that God commands us not to do. It produces vindication. A desire to not continue to tarnish the name of God. To make it clear that, that God has sanctified you. He has cleansed you. The trespass offering looks much different in Christianity than in Judaism. When you think of them, they recognize their guilt. They brought an animal. We recognize our guilt. And we don't deal with it physically, except where it needs to be, like restitution. We deal with it spiritually. But we still have to make a trespass offering. In the trespass offering, they needed to make it known to others why they were sacrificing the sacrifice. We're not to hide our sin. We're not supposed to, when, we, when we're convicted of our sin, when we're dealing with sin, we don't go, oh, I'm just going to hide it from people. 
when we're defiled by the world, when we're affected by the world around us, when we speak thoughtlessly, we have to confess the sin. It leads to those who are directly affected by the sin. But the key thing is, is that we're not to walk in darkness. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. To be giving a trespass offering, you have to be willing to confess your sin. You have to be willing to make it known to people. And the last application, we need continual forgiveness of sin. Because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Even those who work as hard as they can to practice righteousness, even regardless of how diligent you are, you're still falling short of the glory of God. You're still not walking exactly how Christ walked. You're still not perfect as He is perfect. We still need forgiveness of sin. And so we still need thankfulness towards God because He is our trespass offering. It is His sacrifice on the cross that makes our sin continual, continue to be forgiven. Makes our sin continually, when we repent and confess it, that He is faithful to forgive our sin because of the sacrifice of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for this passage. We pray that you convict us as we should be convicted, that you guide us to the things that, that, that we're ignoring in our life, that you guide us to see where we've been affected by the people around us, that we don't even see it, Lord. We ask you to open our eyes so that we can repent, so that we can have more zeal to practice righteousness. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does does open the eyes of your people, that you sent your spirit to guide us to all truth, to convict us of sin. Lord, convict us of sin so that we have the right understanding of who you are and how holy you are. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.